the Red 78. The most important thing was the intensity and the mentality to go after the game. As a coach, why did he only give away nine penalties this week? Available every Wednesday. Don't miss a moment of action. Subscribe to the Rugby Channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. OTB GAA. Delighted to be joined in studio by Zach Moradi. Welcome back, Zach. Thanks very much. Uh, and you've brought your brand new book with you. It's called Life Begins in Leitrim. Uh, you've written it with Niall Kelly and it is in all good bookstores now and I can heartily recommend it. Uh, the title is interesting, Life Begins in Leitrim, because from reading this book, life began anywhere but Leitrim. It couldn't have been further away from Leitrim. And a lot of people would have heard parts of your story through the years. You've been on this show a lot, talking about uh, your hurling career and your integration into Ireland. This starts right at the beginning and your birth in a refugee camp. And those first few chapters of this book are like, geez, they're incredibly hard to read almost as to what you and your family went through. Did you have to have difficult conversations with your mother, with, with different people about, about those early years that you probably struggle to remember? Yeah, um, sometimes it was actually emotional when, uh, when, when Noel Kelly had to interview my mother what they had to go through before I was born. So it was um, it was very emotional. And, you know, obviously we're going, you know, we're going back to before before the Iraq Iran war started in the mm. in the 80s. And my parents had a great life before that war started. They had, as, as I said in the book there, my mother said, your dad had a car when he was 16 and we were living in a, <laughs> a three story house, you know, and, and he was always, he was always, and that was, he was only 16 years of age. And he Is that hard for you to imagine? Because I know reading it, it's hard for me to imagine because like, you know, I've grown up as thinking of Iran, Iraq as somewhere of oppression that you, I, I was never alive to see what happened before and the normality of their existence. Yeah, it's, um, when you're looking, because we're Kurds from Kurdistan, so, you know, our history go back into the 1920s uh, when it was uh, divided. Kurdistan was divided into four by uh, by Britain and France and Michael Sayak, I think, as far as I could remember, he was the, and then obviously Queen Elizabeth, uh, King George, they were there, Winston Churchill, and they, they, promised of a, they promised us a Kurdistan independent and... But obviously, just never fell apart. But we always say we're from Kurdistan. Mm. We never say we're Iraqi or Iranian because our, our country is occupied, you know. And and sadly, how do you feel? Because I'm sure you've heard hundreds of times been described as Iraqi or Iranian through the years. Um, sometimes, look, you just you know you just take it to the head, take it to the air, and it goes out that way, you know. And sometimes it's up to us Kurds, to, you know, tell the world who we are. And I think. Um, like when I came over here about twenty years ago, if you said Kurdistan, we're like, where is that? If you said Kurdish, you know, I probably thought you were talking about kebab or something, you know. Mm. But um, but now it's in the last, you know, the last ten years, obviously Kurdish people fighting against ISIS in the Middle East and fighting against extreme uh, Muslims and and they kind of got the height light from the, the rest of the world and being, and they're being helped out by the by the American and NATO to fight ISIS. But unfortunately, Kurdish people have lost, you know, alone in the last couple of years, we've lost about 25,000 people fighting against ISIS. And like, one thing we never look at in NATO, who, who funds the ISIS, you know? And there's a country in NATO that funds it all, and which is terrible. It's a, it's a Muslim country as well that's in NATO that funds ISIS, and they all come through that country. And, you know, and obviously the... 
this is where the problem is. We want democracy, and our neighbours, you know, unfortunately, sad to say, our Arab neighbours and Turks, they don't want Kurdish independent because we'd be a threat to them because Kurdish people and the Iranian people are very westernised people. And when we go back to into the go back in history in the 60s and 70s, Kurdistan was like was like here. We probably were 50, 50 years ahead of Ireland, mm. and now Ireland are 50 years ahead of us. And it's um, it's very hard, you know, being a Kurd. And even like as I as I said it in the book, there, my parents had everything, you know, you know, they lived in a luxury life, and my grandparents have a lot of land, big farmers, they had everything, you know. But they did, one thing they didn't have was democracy, you know, under the Shah when they lived, they had everything they wanted, but they did not have democracy, which was, um, which is if you you can have everything in life, but if you don't have democracy, you know. You just you're just not going to live in comfortable. Uh, you're not you're going to live. You're not going to live in comfort. So you were born early nineties in the midst of the Gulf War. You were born in a refugee camp. It's pretty much one of the first lines in the book. Your parents at that stage. How long had they been refugees? So they would have been refugees for when I was born. So eighty two. So about ten years, ten eleven years. They were refugees, but obviously. They snuck out the refugee camp. They were in the refugee camp for about six, seven years. And they went back to where they were in a refugee camp. They, they snuck out and they went to the Kurdistan region of Iraq. Right. In the north side. So they snuck out and they wanted... Uh, a lot of people used to sneak back into their own... Back into the country. And obviously, my parents wanted to take a gamble. They wanted to... But then, obviously, it was, it was the height of the war as well. And and they just they got and they got obviously stuck a place called Zarai in, in in Kurdistan. Obviously, it's northern part of Iraq. That, uh, so they got stuck there for two years, and then even it, so they were kind of didn't know what to do. They were just stuck in the middle there. And obviously, that time the Kurdistan regional government was controlled by the Iraqi government by Saddam. Well, obviously, since nineteen ninety one, it's been controlled by Kurdistan, the Kurdish people. They have their own president, parliament, army, as They're called. So then that time when the war kind of stopped and they were all put in the back of a truck and sent back into the refugee camp again because they didn't want, they, they did not want Kurdish people, Iranian Kurdish people in, a, in where the Kurdistan region of, is because obviously then we all speak the same, same language. So they want- Could unite. Could unite and it would be a threat mm. because the, the, then the Iraqi government would be thinking then this could be spies for the Iranians. So there was a, a lot of this going on, you know, and so they just kind of put everybody back of a truck, back out to the refugee camp, and it's not about six, seven hours drive again, seven hours, yeah, it could be 10 hours drive down to the middle of nowhere again. And they just settled there till 2002. But at the same time, when, when they were uh, living in Zarai and, you know, closer to the Kurd- Kurdistan region mm. government, when they were in Kurdistan, they were living there and they were only about, they were only about 25 minutes drive from Halabja when the chemical attack happened. And when the chemical attack happened, a lot of people were fleeing. And, and my parents put up a lot, about 30, 40 people, a couple of families in that house for a couple of days, you know. Wow. And, and as she said that uh, during, during the day, they used to spend, uh, spend the night, uh, during the day, they used to spend the whole day up the mountains. And then at night, they'd come back to the home to sleep because then, so their homes wouldn't get, uh, they wouldn't get bombed at night. They'd only get bombed during the days. Like, that's hard to comprehend living that life. When your dad was alive and and talking to your mother about it, like, did they hold a bitterness from 
the change to their life like it's the most horrific change you say living a, a relatively normal existence and then spending almost you know 20 years in a refugee camp and I'm sure being separated from so many close family members from their own parents uh, to been uprooted and having to move to Ireland and you know well in, in now you might look back and say a, a better life but not the life they wanted when they were growing up yeah it's very um it's very tough what they wanted because because they had they had everything in life and just within a day they lost everything and all they had was their tractor obviously fleeing mm. to Kurdistan going from places to places going from living in tents for a couple of months there a couple of months over there you know they were everywhere and living in tents and then you know getting sent into trucks you know obviously it wasn't only them it was close to about 50 or a thousand Kurdish people and when they all lived in Kurdistan of uh, Iraq and the Iraqi government, it was like 50,000 Kurds here. This is, you know, and at that time in the 86, between 80 and up to 88, Saddam was doing a lot of ethnic cleansing of Kurds mm. in the north and trying to separate them all around Iraq. And it's because we have a lot of, we have a lot of oil and gas in Kurdistan and it's too much of it. That's where the problem is as well. And that's where all this war as well. And a place called Kirkuk. Uh, between 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 eight between seventy eight and up to up to up to eighty eight up to in the nineteen nineties there was hundred eighty two thousand people were displaced out of that Kurdish Kurdish place called Kirkuk it's the biggest oil producers in Iraq at the minute but Saddam brought in Arabs to Arabize it and move the Kurds out because it was a Kurdish city it's part of the Kurdistan region Saddam always if he even said it will give his Kurdish independent whatever you give his everything except Kirkuk. Mm -hmm. You know, and obviously wanted to maintain the wealth, maintain maintain the wealth as well. Um, but that was one of his things as well. You know, but um, Kurdish people have you know have suffered. You know, obviously it's not only our family. It's you know there's 40 million Kurdish people in the Middle East, and I'll say that 40 million live in fair. You know, some part. You know, different different parts are different. If you're in Kurdistan, yeah. Kurdistan of Iraq, they have their own. They have their own, uh, it's called the Kurdistan Regional Government. They have their own government, they have their own president, prime minister, parliament, Peshmerga fighters, about you know, close to half a million. Um, I know people are like half a million. It's, you know, obviously the oil funds that and America funds mm -hmm. them as well. And in Turkey, the Kurdish uh, rebellion are up the mountains in, in the Kandil Mountains. So there's about 10,000 of them and they're based in Syria. Um, but you know, Kurdish is, is banned. You, the, the word uh, Kurdistan is banned altogether in Turkey. You, you could end up in, in prison for 20 years using the word Kurdistan. But in Iraq, then um, Kurdish are not taught in school in, in Turkey as well. That's banned as well. At, at a young age, uh, 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 Turks are uh, they're taught to hate Kurds in school mm. in, in Turkey. And then um, in Iran then, it's a lot more different. Um, Iran doesn't do ethnic cleansing around like that because our language is a similarity to Farsi people. But you can speak Kurdish. We can celebrate our own traditional music and sing song. And but then Kurdish is not allowed to be teaching school. A girl, uh, there was a girl there uh, last year, and um, she was teaching private couple of kids in, in, in a home. It was, mm. and she got um, she got five years in prison. Well, even in the last few weeks, obviously, everyone's been looking at what's been going on in Iran and the clampdown on the Kurdish communities. Like, what you're talking about there is four different countries that you know, make up what should be Kurdistan and all have different attitudes and different ways of treating Kurdish people. And none of them are good. That feels to me like something that weighs quite heavily on your shoulders every day. 
yeah it's it's in every Kurdish people's mind around around the West and around the world there's a lot of Kurds you know in England there's close to 2 million Kurds in Germany you know a lot Sweden and you know and everybody is just it's in everybody's head because we can't forget here because I have relations over there and in, in in Kurdistan of Iraq and Kurdistan of Iran and other and rest of the world and and, uh, and have you been back since you first came over in 2002 into what I was born mm. um, no no oh, so it's been 20 years um, but I love to visit the Kurdistan of Iraq that's like a, a bit of a mini Dubai there you know so right it's there, I like to see the the changes there that's ha- happening and, but they're still fighting every day as well you know were you always as aware and as passionate because say you've been in the studio and quite often we sort of tell the good news side of your arrival into Ireland and say your integration into the community either in Leitrim or in Tala and playing hurling I've never heard you speak about this side of, of your family as much and it's such an important part of this book and clearly such an important part of your life Obviously, when I was playing, I just wanted to, didn't want to talk about it because mm. I just wanted to concentrate on sports, just playing hurling and football and, and on my work. And obviously, I'm kind of playing a little a less hurling now. I'm finished with Leitrim, so close to two years. So I kind of, I have that little bit of a freedom now. I can um, sometimes, I think sometimes we're better off speaking up because someone has to speak up. We can't all just keep quiet um, because... If an Israeli kills a Palestinian kid, you know, the whole country's talking about it here. Everyone on social media tweeting about it. There's hundreds of Kurdish people get killed every day, are imprisoned every day, torture, rape in the Middle East. And we never hear, we never talk about it. But, and we, we, we'll see it, you know, and it's all, we have close to 30 TV, Kurdish TV channels in Kurdistan of Iraq, and that shows it all the time. And there's Kurdish, uh, this Kurdish vill- village is getting bombed all the time and you know no one's everyone just watching ah it's just because Europe have good relations with Turkey mm. you know and this is where the big issue is and and I think in the last couple of years you know the, the French and the Germans kind of know what Turkey are like as a country and because the Kurdish uh, the Kurdish regional government in Syria and Rojava they have 150,000 ISIS fighters in prison there and 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 then when you're looking when when they're the commander of the Kurdistan region is getting interviewed, where are these all these fighters coming from? Turkey, what passport did the whole Turkey? You know, so so this is where the this is where the big thing is, and we need countries in Europe, Ireland, speaking up. You know, if you're going to speak up against trying to expel the Israelis, you know, you know why can't you? If if we're going to expel one, we have to expel ten others. You know, it's not just one. There's other. It's just sometimes maybe there's more Arabs living in Ireland and put put pressure on the Irish government. Maybe there's less Kurds and we have less say. But if we're going to start, we just need to treat people equally and treat, you know, every embassy equally. We cannot. And you having those conversations with politicians? I've said it to them, yeah. And but sometimes you're like, oh yeah, we'll do say this, we'll do something about it. But um, never really. Sometimes a few times has been brought up. Uh, you know, uh, brought up in the Irish Parliament in 2019 when when the when Afrin was occupied as a Kurdish city, and a lot of Kurds, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have moved out of their home in Afrin, and they're bringing Arabs. The Turkish government are bringing Arabs, Arabizing these Kurdish homes. It's it's no different to what's happening to the to the um, to, to, to the Palestinians. You know, so it's we're very there's a massive double standard going on here you know like Turkey are worried about George Floyd you know the sympathise and they can demand what happened to one man that died you know we're losing hundreds every day and no one opened their mouth um, and that's why 
you know, we'll never, Kurdish people are just kind of, we're sick of protests and we're, we're sick of speaking up. And and then I always say in the Middle East, um, Europe and NATO, they only have two friends in the Middle East. That's Kurdistan and the Israelis. Because, and, and to be fair, I know sometimes we all give out about the Israelis as well. They have to protect themselves. And if they don't, they'd be wiped up off the map. You see countries in the Middle East are, are threatening them as well. And people have to go back into histories. All these Israeli Jews are Arab Jews. There's 150, 170,000 Jews who were airlifted out of Iraq in, in the 1950s. You know, where are these people meant to go? And same with Egypt. Where's all the Jews in Egypt or all the rest of the Arab countries? So there's, it's a long history, it's, it's messy. And as you say, it is very messy, and as you go into the geopolitical situation, it gets messier and messier. Your own personal story, so as I say, you're born in the refugee camp, and you're there for roughly 10 years. Can you describe what that's like? like is it, does it feel, it's your childhood, so I presume it just feels like a normal childhood. Like is it, are you going to bed every night with, in fear? Or is it actually, like, do, do you look back... Do you look back in any way fondly on, on those 10 years? Because it was just what you lived. It was just, it was just normal, kind of, because you're brought up in that type of environment. Everything was just, everything was just normal, and everybody that, that lived beside you was the same. There was no such a thing as, you know, rich or poor. We are, we're all poor. We're all in the same. Even people had money. They could, you know, kids could have, the kids could afford the best of runners or best of this, you know, but then make sure their kids live like us. If we, have, if we were, you know, playing football in our bare feet, everybody played football in their mm. bare feet because you even remember when we were playing soccer, there was this rule, oh, you're not allowed to wear your uh, runners because we're playing our bare feet because you'll break our leg, you know, <laughs> for a tackle. So there's all, um, it was just, it was normal. And then it's just till we moved to Ireland and you were like, uh-oh, there's here, uh, you know, this is the real life here, you know. So uh, did your dad say in the refugee camp, would your dad have worked? Yeah, he would have worked, yeah. Okay. He would, uh, so you were allowed work and you were allowed make a living? Yeah, he had a he, he had a he had a bus before I was born. He was driving a bus in the in the eighties. Well obviously back then my grandparents were wealthy enough, like they were well you know, they were able to obviously have gold and money back then to right. bring have tractors. So they were able to buy something and try to make a few quid in the side, you know. And me dad done that, I drove a bus, then he was driving uh uh, a tanker but everything was because Iraq was you know people don't realise it was like obviously it's a dictatorship everything is corruption mm. and like people were not allowed to work you know there was you know like you weren't meant to be going outside our refugee okay. camp but people used to bribe the the police at the police station because they used the police station and you had the secret service but everybody used to just bribe them and they were able to just go and say oh we'll be back in a couple of hours but then because people lived there for about 20 years then it just became normal and then you became and it was the same police people that were at the thing it just became normal people started making friends with them and then it was like just people going everywhere where they wanted it was just kind of smoothly slowly right. and obviously then obviously then the the Iraqi government you know there used to be there was Kurdish people then they got people there to, to work for them a secret service you know, infiltrate in in Iran, and because we were the, because where the war was, it was uh, where the war was uh, because it was Kurdistan was occupied by the Iraqi government, and they used to need people from that refugee camp to go and translate for them because Iraq is Arabs and we are Kurds and the North is all Kurds. We speak the same language and speak the Farsi as well, so they used to. T- 
they used to, you know, take a lot of so people. whatever skills and talents you had, you were you were able to use them. And yeah, keep going. Yeah. So, how did your family get out? So we got out in two fourth uh, of July in two thousand and two. Um, we got out because my brother used to work in the United Nations there, the UN as we call it. Um, he was there working there for a couple of years, and obviously you go for an interview. You're, you're waiting for a couple of months, a couple of months of process, uh, paperwork, and you know why do you want to go? What's the reason? Like obviously, majority of Kurds that came to Ireland and Europe became Kurds. So uh, would you have seen, say, in those few years before you came to Ireland, would you have seen friends, their families? get refugee status, get moved out of the country? Yeah, all the time, yeah. Right. We used to see it all the time. Everyone's like, oh, we're next, or they're next, you know, because every time there was, every week or every month, there's a different family going somewhere. There's families going to, it's just like we have a lot of relations, went to Sweden, Norway, um, a lot of them went to Canada, I have a lot of relations in Canada, you know, Australia, New Zealand, all, all over. You just, just, we know people all over Europe now, a lot of relations. They were just, you know, every time, oh, where is he going? Oh, they're going there. And some people, they were going to countries they never even heard, you know. <laughs> it was funny, though, I never heard yeah. of Ireland either. It was just, you're just trying to get out. And for your parents, was that a, a straightforward decision, uh, considering you're living in a refugee camp, to want to leave, to, to go to wherever, whether it was Sweden, Norway, Ireland, they knew they had to get out of there as quickly as they could? Or was there any part of them that... that, that, that felt, because they had so many other family members there, that, 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 that had to stay? Um, like there was people there that didn't want to go they yeah. wanted to go back to Kurdistan of Iran a lot of people did go back out of that 50,000 I say about you know you know about 40,000 I say went right, back they took the risk yeah they took the risk and snuck out through the country going through the mountains and you know but some of them went back had nothing when they went back like my uncles went back my grandparents went back and they had to start from scratch everything was flattened from the bombs so they had to start from zero and so that was it. And people would have heard that then, you know, some people didn't want to go back. Some people, it was just, everything was word of mouth before as well. There's no phones mm. or anything like that. And everything was writing a letter, you know, people who used to write letters, you know, brothers be there writing about 10 pages. How was he? How was he getting out? How was life? And you could be waiting for another six months by the time you get another letter, <laughs> you know. There was, uh, there was all that kind of yeah. carry on. And then people used to be, you know, doing the old videotapes, recording, going to the houses, say hello to him and him. And then you'd be saying, if you go into all the houses in the little village, little area we were in the camp, and then that video or you posted and someone will be going to the, someone be going to the Kurdistan of Iraq. And, you know, he said, oh, I'll pass on here's to all that. your cousins. Yeah, here's all your cousins and someone else will go to the border. Will you pass on this tape to him? Yeah. And it was all just kind of that type of way. And people were just kind of seeing if their relations were alive or they're dead or they you know so they kind of went through they went through all that as well and so what was uh, going through your head when you got on that flight to go to Ireland it was um, at that time I didn't know where I was going I was just delighted I was going to plane I was kind of half asleep I didn't know what was going it was a different world we were um, obviously we got into a bus from the, the camp went into over to Jordan mm. and unmanaged so we stayed there for about two nights I think it was at the time and then from there got on the plane to Frankfurt and then there for another couple, I arrived in Dublin, and and then up there, I got on the bus to Leitrim, and then life just begins there. Then. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was we could have been here actually a lot earlier as well. We could have been here in 2000, 2000 or 2001. There was a couple of Kurdish family that came before us. We were meant to 
come with them, but we couldn't come because my dad was in prison. And that was where the delay was, so we couldn't. Uh, and your dad was in prison for you don't know why. He worked for an oil company, and and there was two two part of the there was two part of the there was two parts of the company. Obviously, it was divided, but one part was there was stuff going wrong, or whatever was happening with oil, and you know, Iraq. The sanction was on the country. There was money not going in, and so there's two. Two the director of the company, two engineers were fighting with each other and what happened, they went to court and my dad's the side my dad was on, they lost the court case, so they were all put to prison, the whole lot of them. For how long? Well some of them was some of them was sent to five years, some was ten. The hierarchy How spe- long did he spend in there? He spent over he spent close to about close to about fifteen, sixteen months. He was in and out all the time, you know. He'd be in, he was in Abu Ghraib. Um, then he was in another test for you, another prison call in there. Then he was in another prison in. And would uh, he have spoken about that much and the experience of that? No, nothing. I visited the prison, so I kind of, you know, obviously in your case, you're just delighted to visit your yeah. parent. And, you know, so you all got to visit every week or, you know, or we go down sometime every three weeks. But the thing was, every time, oh, he's getting released next week or he's getting released next month or he's, re- yeah, no, there's all that. And you know that once he comes out, you're going to be able to leave. Well, that was kind of, yeah. When he, but obviously, we, oh, I didn't know that. Well, none of them. We, we kept, we were obviously kept the right. older brothers. Yeah, yeah. We kept it quiet. It was just once he got out, he can just get it and get out. And obviously then, obviously, he was in and out. And, you know, obviously back then as well, there was no really court cases like here. You have juries, you have, like, and it's a propaganda, you know. It's, yeah. it's a bit like North Korea and Russia. You're well, in. That's the, as you say, when you're in and out, there's no guarantee when you're going to get out on a permanent basis. So yeah, well, that's sure the thing. Your mother was a huge fear. Yeah, it was once you, once you, once you got into prison, that's it. It was like, you, you never get out. That's the mm. way Iraq was. And, and it was, um, it was, you know, it was sad when you look back as well, what happened, you know. And, you know, eventually he got out and we were delighted. And obviously there was this, um, when Ed Mubarak comes, they pardon a lot of prisoners, you know, and they release them. So he mm-hmm. got that kind of pardon and side of things. And but they were only, you know, oil truck truck drivers, you know. So they had they they hadn't done that, and then they were just kind of. But um, but as far as when I was going to prison, they seemed all right. They had their own little basketball court. There's about fifty of them. They were all kind of people at his own age. Yeah. Just, it's funny know. how you look at things when you're a kid. You're like, you got a basketball court. Can't yeah, be, can't <laughs> be that bad. Yeah, I mean that was it. Yeah, because we didn't have a basketball court yeah. in um, where we were. There was none of that kind of when they had a basketball court. But same time as well, when we used to visit the Abu Ghraib prison, it was scary. I know I'm laughing, but it was it was very scary. I remember. It was yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, Remember, like people, be you know, there could be ten, twenty of us going in. By the time some people, like Jesus, by the time I, I went in and they got out, with no money left in my pocket, and my watch is gone. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it was just trying to, you know, every time you're bringing food or something, because obviously the the prison officers there as well, they wouldn't be on good money and they'd be poor as well. A lot yeah. in the army and so just a lot of corruption everywhere you went. Just corruption everywhere. It was just by the time you got in, you just pay that pay money the whole way in nearly and then coming out paying money the whole way in and going to the police station going to Ramadi you know obviously there's over there every time there's a police there's a checkpoint it's always always on the road in, in Iraq that's the way like not in Ireland you know you've seen Ireland it's always in states or in the town or yeah. over there everything was on the road you know so you couldn't and that's how Saddam was able to control the whole country you know like, and that's what people even talk Jeez, how did he do that like he had nearly secret service he knew what you had for breakfast. He knew where you are tomorrow. He knew where you, uh, 
you know there's all this um they just knew everything you know they knew everything about you they just couldn't um you couldn't go anywhere you couldn't eat and they just knew the people inside out and that's why saddam eventually he had so many secret service uh, around the whole of iraq he had infiltrated every household in the country and eventually you know he didn't even trust his own son-in-laws he killed two of his son-in-laws obviously remember two of them in 96 kamal hussein was um, right and they, they legged the jordan and then he forgave them tell them to come back and he made him divorce his daughters and then and then he you know he bombed the back out with him as they say yeah and and then he killed him so that was a thing where he didn't care he was what he killed his he killed his own relations as well and eventually when saddam got um, got caught you know it was his own cousins that handed him to the americans yeah you know because because he done so much uh he, he done so much killing of people and he you know he slaughtered so many people innocent iraqi people over people especially the shias as well from the south and the kurds and he just do you, you remember know, when he was caught and when he was killed and yeah we what? were here in ireland we we're watching it everybody was delighted and everybody was delighted as well and it was it was funny with the deck double card the cards they were all out all the names of the people that were mm-hmm. in charge of iraq for 30 40 years everyone from the parliament speaker vice president every one of them was uh every one of them was arrested and you nearly 99 percent of them all executed and killed which was which was great and you know and that kind of when that showed and hopefully then it kind of wreck has changed since obviously since 2003 and there's elections people have democracy i know Iraq hasn't settled down yet it's wreck is an artificial state as well it was it was just it was just uh it was just obviously the Britain and France just woke up one morning. They drew a map of the whole crazy Saudi Arabia and Iraq and just and Syria. That's the way it was back then. But back then, you know, before my grand, my grand, my granddad and his parents when they lived, people lived in their own life. There was, yeah. there, was no, there was no religion and all that didn't you know. People didn't fight over the big factor in their lives. Yeah, it wasn't a big factor in their lives. Religion didn't exist or like it did exist, but people weren't you know. They weren't religious. They were just like I. I look at it now. They were like you know like an Irish Catholic person now, not compared to an Irish person fifty years ago. Yeah. But compare like now, but now Ireland has changed. Over there, have gone back a little bit. You know, sometimes we're um, sometimes we create all them over there as well. You know, it's it's sometimes you know the Western they we create these Taliban and these crowd as well. So it's not like. People don't want them, but we create them, and all of a sudden you're stuck with them. Yeah, and it's, wreak havoc for decades and decades, and and then it's very hard to then trying to get rid of them because we put them, we put we put them people in power, you know, and it's it's uh, the whole you know the whole Middle East is it's a mess, and then you have the Kurds, and we're stuck in the middle between <laughs> all the wars. Every war is just we're the losers, and well, in the last twenty years, you know, the Kurds have got a, a lot of their lands back, a lot of especially in Syria. They have a lot of land back and Kurdistan of Iraq and you know it's uh, I know but we're tra- to Turkey is where 20 million Kurds live there and and all people want it in Ireland is a function of democracy yeah everybody's treated the same I have a lot of Arab friends here a lot of you know all all sorts Indians what you want is your land and, and peace people yeah people. and I don't know like, we'll all get on here and over there is, they have different mentality OTB GAA. The name of the book, The Life Begins in Leitrim, uh, 
you're only 10, 11 when you arrive in Leitrim and you know, it seems just absolutely flourish and settle into the community quite quickly. What about your parents? Like, was were they, when they landed, having left, like left their parents behind and left the life that they had known even for the previous 20 years in the refugee camp? How did they settle? It was very really hard for them as well. Um, I say for 10 years after that, 20 years after that, even 10 years we were still here, their head was still still at home. It was always, like our heads was here because we were younger and we'd obviously integrate quicker and you kind of, when you're younger as well, you forget about home. Mm. But as you get older, you kind of, and then it reminds you again then, you know. Um, they found it tough because they had friends home, they had family, you know, and their relations there, even when 2003, when the invasion happened, you know, a lot of Kurds were delighted they're going to get yeah. rid of this, this monster, um, Saddam Hussein, and everybody was delighted. And, and the Kurdish people, obviously, they helped the Americans, uh, the overthrow Saddam as well from the north and make it a lot easier then. They were delighted, but at the same time, it was like, you know, we're on the phone. My parents were on the phone the whole time. And kind of 2003 and that, the phone started to become mm. a fashion kind of. It was like the old cards. Constantly in touch con- with relatives. Con- and Constantly in touch. And again, it, a different kind of fear, not for themselves, but for your family stuck at Yeah, family, stuck st- back. Uh, family and relations stuck there. And they were ringing up and my parents were like, where are you just going? And they were like, oh, we don't know which side to go. And and then like, I remember people are ringing. Oh, the Iraqi armies are beside us that... Uh, uh, there's about hundreds of them are coming they want to change their the army clothes and they're giving us their AK-47 and their cars and all that so a lot of Kurdish people in the camp then you know the ones that were left behind mm. so they just start giving Kurdish clothes into the Iraqi the armies these people are from poorer part of Iraq they yeah. you know, joined the army and they start changing their uh, their uh, their guns and their cars for Kurdish clothes so they, they can just snuck back out they saw people to, so then because obviously if you're in the arm, it's like sometimes the story I see with the Russians, if they're at war in Ukraine, they can't turn back. If they turn back, what are you coming back for? They'll get killed, so obviously. There's someone else behind them. That's what... Just looking for a way out. Looking for a way out. And a lot of the Kurds then, you know, obviously they took a lot of a lot of the Iraqi army, their Toyotas and 4X4s and their guns, and then yeah. they took a risk and they went to Kurdistan of Iraq, a lot of them. And now a lot of them, there's two, three thousand of fleet there, and now there's... And they're still there in the, in Kurdistan. They never went back home. They got settled there and they got their Iraqi passport after 25 years later or whatever, 40 years later. They got settled there and a lot of others went to... Then whatever way the, the war was getting bombed places, people are like, oh, we're going to have to go to... The, a lot of them are going to the border between Jordan and Iraq. So a lot of them went to Jordan. So a lot of Kurdish people came here. They were stuck in the camp in Jordan. A lot of them ended up here in Ireland uh, in 2006. And they were living in tents for three. They were living in tents for about three or four years, mm. and they ended up here, and they ended up in the rest of uh, rest of Europe. So some ended up in Kurdistan, of Iraq. Some ended up in the camp in Jordan. So just some people. Yeah, ended there's up quite a the diaspora refu- now around the world. Around the world, yeah. You, how long you lived in Leitrim for? What about three years? Two years. Made quite the impact on you. Yeah, it did. It made a. It made a. Uh, made a massive difference. Obviously, you know, in a life kind of just started and just kind of opened their eyes and learning new things about Ireland and people in Leitrim the people were great as well the neighbours we had and you know obviously hurling football managers through the years and I always say like if you play GAA you're, you're always Ireland's very small and everybody knows each other when you play GAA you kind of get to know everybody from all around the country and that's why I have so many GAA friends all over the country I was at uh, I was in Letterfrack uh, in, in Galway there um on Tuesday 
on Tuesday and I met four people there and I hadn't seen 20. Oh, Jesus, remember, yeah, you were in, you were in Carrick, I'm living here. Oh, right. But it's mad, Ireland's just very small, you yeah. know. And I was in then, I was in uh, Louisbourg yesterday as well and I met three or four people. Do you know such and such in, in Tala? I used to live in Tala and it was like, yeah, I do. I play with hurling and football with their young fellas. Yeah, yeah. But it was just, it's just Ireland's just such a small and I mentioned the fella, his name's Tom Finnerty. Um, his sister was there and he was very good to us when we were in Leitrim. And he was, a, he was a, actually, he was an ex-guard and uh, he, was, he used to just show us the, a round of Carrick and Shan, the rules and the laws and stuff like that. You know, it helps. And we met, you know, his sister there. I was like, oh, my, my bro used to work with Tom Finn. I was like, oh, geez, I have you mentioned in the book. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just, Ireland's just so small. Everybody knows, everybody knows each other, you yeah. know, and just, that's what the GA does. The GA to me, it's like, it's like a charity a bit, you know, they're always willing to help and it's... How long know. were you were you in Carrick before you went down to the GA club? I was after the first couple of weeks. Right. The first couple of weeks. The minute we started primary school and we were in, you know, obviously them, the... Then fellas go around the GPOs around the primary schools. It helps and it, it gets people playing, you know. And I've noticed big big difference in Thomas Davis GA club going from twenty teams in two thousand three to ninety six teams since they put a, a GPO going around to the three little primary schools we work off in Thomas Davis and Tala and everyone thinks we have the whole of Tala. We don't. We only have three primary schools. We've Bally Bowden beside us, Evans, we have Marks and and it's uh it's, you know, the people do great work in every GA clubs where they are, you know, and it's all it's all done voluntarily, and it's what makes Ireland a great country. And everyone is, everyone's looking out for each other, and and I've not I've seen it at our club as well. Everyone's always looking out for each other, and anybody's struggling, you know, needs a job. There's always oh, ring that fella, he's looking for a bit of work. There's always that, and it's no different down the country when I'm down there as well. It's the same thing, and that's what that kind of GA, GA connection it, it makes a big difference. Yeah, clearly to your life, because I hadn't realised how little time you'd actually spent in Leitrim, considering how much love you seem to have for the place and the dedication you showed, travelling down two, three times a week and, you know, starting out when you were playing with the hurlers and there was no uh, there was no expenses or anything like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, you were being tr- treated very differently from the top inter-county teams. That now that you've stepped away from the inter-county scene... How do you reflect on on that period? Like it seems like a period you got a huge amount of joy from, both as a, as a sports person, but just even been able to make maintain that connection with Leitrim. Yeah, when I started, obviously for me there was no expense. I just wanted to play. I just loved the game and just drive down. I didn't really, you know, expense and stuff like that never came to mind or not like that. I just wanted to play, yeah. and you know, same with the majority of lads. But then, obviously, as you get a little bit older, and then. Yeah, when you get a little bit older and then obviously you're putting a lot of mileage and there's a lot of wear and tear in your car and sometimes you're driving down for three hours but then you do the maths you're, you know it costs your fortune going down you know it's you know every time you're going down you have to fill the tank for the week you know you're putting over 120 euro in diesel and then by the end of the week comes you've nothing in it it's just because you're doing that travelling and then and then you're not even adding up you know having a cup of coffee or a small samba on yeah. the way and obviously having a little bar a drink and everything just you know, you spend a, a cost of fortune to be playing, and then, and obviously it was, it was great then with the, with the with the GPA around the Gaelic Players Association, and they do a great job behind the scenes. Sometimes um, they don't get enough credit for it, but be, behind the scene they do a lot of work, a lot a lot of work behind the scene with inter-county players, and especially with weaker counties, which they need their help. Then the bigger counties, 
sometimes when you're it's a lot easier playing for Limerick hurlers and Dublin footballers and when you're playing Division 1 counties it's a lot easier there's a lot of funding involved and but the weaker counties you always have to change uh, chase for funding and they mightn't be big but every little helps kind of but um, it's, it's it's tough even playing for smaller counties because you're treated a little bit more differently but it's, things have changed has improved things are improving the whole time with uh, you know players playing for uh, counties and it's it's like uh, the Leitrim senior footballers going to New York they're already thinking about we don't have the funding who's gonna yeah so there's <laughs> who's gonna pay for it <laughs> yeah, who's gonna pay for it and this is the reality like, and I was yeah. only down in Leitrim they're like oh they're going over they need this much funding to cover the cost and it's and that's where the that's where the uh, that's what Leitrim is at and uh, you know I think if Limerick was going down they w- it wouldn't be in the social media or like that or Dublin uh, footballers are looking for a for funding to travel to to New York, it's always the counties like Leitrim or Sligo. We need help. Yeah, at least they at least they look for help. You know, well, the struggle is a part of it in those the counties. The struggle, isn't yeah, it? yeah. That's we just need more, more. We need more funding for the yeah. you know counties like small counties like Leitrim. Like I'm in Talent Thomas Davis. You know, we have the best of facilities with Astros, floodlights, dressing rooms. You know, our our facilities nearly bigger than the the Leitrim. I don't want you saying that now in Thomas Davis now. They want more in Thomas Davis. They want more Astros, more floodlights. More, yeah. We need. We, we always need more. But that's the thing. But um, but any money to, to Thomas Davis, the bar it makes, it goes back into the club, yeah. into getting the pitch done. And but that's the thing. You know, a club in nearly every club in Dublin has Astros and that. But when you're in Leitrim, there, there isn't an there isn't an Astro there. You know, it's you know the floodlights, but sure. After two training sessions, the pitch is called that for a month yeah. because <laughs> it's wrecked. It's what wrecked. are you? What are you filling your evenings with now? Did you have, I guess, a whole lot more spare time than you've had over the last decade, and you're not commuting and spending six hours in the car three times a week? I'm I'm working, and obviously, and I am uh, I'm coaching a uh, you know with a kids team under sixteen, and then sometimes I'd be bringing my nephew up to hurling and football training, but I'm. At the same time, just busier. I don't know. Maybe it's my shift work as well. Yeah, um, I'm always, you know, obviously do a lot of, you know, talks at schools or, you know, about GA and sports. Um, just keeping busy, kind of get to spend a bit more time with, you know, a little bit more time with family, as well. You know, so it's um, just keeping busy that way. Going to, I, I get to see a lot more hurling football matches than ever. You know, in the last, especially this year, I've seen. A lot of matches, and they get great enjoyment out of going to games, and you know you have that freedom. It's so I'm going up to matches. I was, I, I went up to the you know St Mary's in, in, in the Leitrim County football final against Mohol. There's a couple of thousand people at it. Yeah. I couldn't believe the crowd that was down at it, you know, and the crack at it, you know, and it just shows you know the passion, the the. Just what it means so much to the people up there, you know. And then sometimes if you're probably in some part of the country, like Leitrim and GA, like it's um people love GA down Leitrim, they love Gaelic and they love any sports and uh, Yeah, and that's the odds what, are just stacked against them. They all just yeah, stacked against them. And that's why I always say as long as there's hurling in the in the weaker counties, you know, then hurling will always be strong around the country because in the end of the day the people that go to hurling matches is people like from Leitrim, Longford and all that. I always said if if one one county in Ireland steps away from the hurling, there'd be another one after, another one, another one, and the game will, you know, become an eight-county sport. Yeah, and it will disappear, you know. Yeah. But as long as there's, you know, 
the 32 Camelf. I wouldn't say there's 32, there's nearly 30. We have Warwickshire, London, Lancashire. There's there's a lot more, you know, so th- there is. Hurling's getting, it's getting huge, especially in Dublin. I've noticed in Dublin, Hurling's getting massive, you know, it's, uh, it's it's getting huge. And hope to see Dublin hurlers to win all Ireland in a few years. That's um, few years. A few well, years. next two or three years, you know. Yeah. Uh, Zach, I think it's fair to say we've just scratched the surface of what is a remarkable story. Um, brilliantly honest book uh, Zach Moradi Life Begins in Leitrim uh, he's got the model cover on it so you'll uh, you'll spot it instantly uh, when you're out looking before Christmas thanks a million for coming to the studio again and best of luck with it all thanks very much